Hello there. Just wanted to let you know about amusingspodcast.com. That's our website where we have some great links, photographs, and opportunity to check out our guests like Michael D. McCarthy's projects they're working on and great information. Love to see you. Come on over to amusingspodcast.com. everyone welcome to amusings a podcast style conversation with all the amazing people that make up the hospitality and service industries i'm rachel and i'm leslie and we also have adria here with another surprise guest adria take it away hello everybody yes another exciting surprise guest this individual is somebody i actually met at a storytelling conference at Brown University a gazillion years ago. And we hit it off, struck up a friendship. We have remained friends ever since, but he is a professional storyteller who also is using his craft to help men in prison. So he's got some really interesting tales to tell. I would like to introduce you to my friend, Michael McCarthy. Michael, why don't you share a little bit about who you are, where you started, where you are now with Leslie and Rachel. Sure. Greetings and salutations. How to heaven are y'all? Whoa, where to begin? As a storyteller, as an activist, where do you want me to start? Wherever you feel most comfortable. Okay. Well, let's start at a storyteller. We'll get to the activism. 1992. I was at CAGE, the Conference on Alternatives in Jewish Education. That's another story. (laughs) And I was introduced to Joel Ben-Izzi, who was introduced to me as a professional storyteller. I said, you do what? People pay you to tell stories? I've been telling stories forever. How do you do that? So I picked his brain, and he answered all my questions. And while we were talking, it came to me. I said, I'm going to do this, and my motto was going to be, have mouth, we'll run it. So after that gig, I thought, okay, how do I do this? So I went to my local library. I was living in Echo Park section of LA at the time. I'm getting all these books, collections of folk tales, books about the art of storytelling. One day, the librarian, Anthony Bernier, the young adult librarian, says to me, why are you getting all these books? Are you writing a paper? I said, no, I'm a storyteller. You're a storyteller? I've got these teenagers. They want to learn storytelling. Can you give them a workshop? I said, sure. My mama told me if I could read, I could do anything, and I can read my butt off. I gave the workshop. It was a great success. Two women from the L.A. library system came to do a a portion of a workshop about puppetry for the kids, and they arranged for me to do a personal showcase for all the L.A. city librarians. And it jumped off from there. Then I learned about the National Storytelling Network, which was NAPS at the time. And I just, all these things, connections started happening. And I've been running my mouth around the country and around the world ever since. That, and that's true. And he's brilliant. I've had the chance to, to hear him live and it's just captivating. Oh, I can tell I'm already captivating. I just want you to keep talking. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> well, and he couples that with the activism piece of it, right? That falls into into play as well. I'll tell you a little bit about that. So I'm originally from Chicago. In the 60s, I had a variety of incidents that happened that made me aware of what was going on on a personal basis. Encounters with the police that were extremely negative. 
So first, I was part of the youth wing of the NAACP. I was attending St. Ignatius High School at the time. We started a black student organization there. In 1968, I would join the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, somewhere prior to that, I got kicked out of high school for leading a walkout, a black student walkout. There were white students who walked it out in support also. 39 years later, a movement started with classmates because me and my buddy G.L. Tyler had been kicked out. These classmates started a movement. So 39 years later, the school apologized, gave us our diplomas, had a big ceremony, over 200 people in attendance, and we got our high school diplomas in 2008. My buddy Tyler his granddaughter, one of his granddaughters was there. She was about five years old. She said, Granddaddy, how come it take you so long to get your diploma? <laughs> <laughs> but many of you may have heard of Fred Hampton, who was the deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. He was assassinated December 4th, 1969 at 4 a.m. I left that apartment at about 2 a.m. And one of the people I believe who had taken my spot on the couch where I'd fallen asleep was one of the people who'd been shot. So that began wow. a life of first activism. And then at some point I met my first wife there. We left the party in 1970. I was working at the uh, 1970, 1971. I was working at the post office in Chicago. And one day my supervisor told me I had to go to the ninth floor. And if this was a movie, the music would have been da 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 da. <laughs> the ninth floor, even my supervisor, who was not a friend or a fan or anything like that, he said it with trepidation. Two FBI agents were there. They wanted me to rejoin the party and be an informer. I told them what they could do with that idea, and they didn't get upset. They just said, We can make your life very difficult. Either you'll work for us or you won't work. And they proceeded to destroy my life. They had documents, conversation I had about revolution. When we got our FBI files, my ex-wife and I, they had when we had arguments, when we made love, conversations that I had with people in bookstores and what have you. I, I had to leave my job. I'd fly for other jobs. Nothing would happen. And I had three apartments broken into eight times in less than a two-year span. The last break-in was the night before Thanksgiving 1972. Came home, anything I had of value was gone and everything else was wrecked. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I've got the FBI kicking my butt. I joined the army. I said, if they're going to watch me, I'm going to go someplace where they can watch me. I'm going to play soldier. I'm going to get these people off my butt. So one day I had had basic and advanced individual training at Fort Polk, Louisiana. So I finished basic, I had a gig as a platoon guide, and when I went to my next unit, I got the same gig, I had a rep. I'm walking past my basic unit one day, and one of the permanent duty guys says, Matt, these FBI people, they've been here asking all about you. And I said, okay, I'm expecting this. The next day, my drill sergeant at the other unit said, Matt, the FBI people want to talk to you, two FBI agents. And when I finished talking with them, I had one of the FBI agents in tears. I've seen the error of my ways. I am here to serve my country. And I got them off my back. And so that's just a little bit of the tidbits and of the 
ups, downs, and sideways of the life of Michael D. McCarty. And still you are the kind of individual that when you walk into a room, you just light it up. You have nothing but optimism and joy spewing from every every pore. And One of the and, basics of my life is life is too short to feel bad. That's my basic philosophy of life. So I try to be happy and share happiness wherever I go. For instance, I work in prisons. I've been, since 2014, I've been working in a dozen different California prisons teaching a story creation workshop. I show inmates how to find, develop, and tell their own stories. When they go for parole board, they have to be able to tell their story. When they get out, go for a job interview, reconnect with family and friends, they have to be able to tell their story. And one of the things that I counsel them on is that when you get out, you can't just what I call listing. I took this class, I got this diploma, I got this degree, because the story is what matters. So one of my guys got out, he went for a job interview, and he was listing. And the interviewer stopped him and said, yeah, yeah, but what's your story? And he called me up to say, Mike, you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I've been at this long enough that I've seen a lot of my guys get out. Two of my guys got their bachelor's degrees this year. Another one started a PhD. Guys are doing well. And I'm very happy to have a little bit of part of them having success in their lives. That's amazing. <laughs> They're just stunned right now. Rachel and Leslie can't say anything. I know. I'm trying to take all the information in. <laughs> I think kind of one of the first things I want to go back to when you were uh, when you're youth in Chicago. And first of all, I think when we're younger, our brains work differently. <laughs> mm, oh yeah. Or, or, or <laughs> they, to say. We're not, we're not all. all the way baked. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, th what you dealt with and what I dealt with are two totally different things. So I want to understand it more. And one is the boldness, the bravery, and the ability to organize yourself and others to make statements. And that statement being that it kind of culminated in a walkout. So I want to understand how that happened. And then number two, I want to understand what the apology felt like later. Because those okay. are two different people. That was a young man that was early yeah. on. And then yeah. it was a different, it was a more experienced person that got the apology. And I want to understand what that dichotomy was like. Okay, going to the first part, it goes back to my mom. My mom taught me early on in life that you have a responsibility. If you see something wrong, you have a responsibility to either do something about it or inform somebody about it so they can do something about it. But you've got to take action. That was the thing that I learned from my mom. Now, when I started practicing that, my mom wasn't all that happy. She found out about the walkout on the news because St. Ignatius is a big to-do school. So I come home, there's my mother with my brother and sister. Oh, you know, I'm the, I'm the baby in the family. My brother and sister watching the news. My mother's crying because this is a private school. My parents spent a lot of money for me to go to that school. And I came in, you know, rah, rah, rah. tough. My brother, my father was at work. That's why I'm still alive. My brother decided to fill in for my father. So I, I go into my room and he comes in. He's got me down on my bed. He's about to whoop my butt. And I started talking. And if y'all ain't already figured it out, I can talk. And I <laughs> talked and talked and talked until he unballed his fist. And what ultimately 
came to happen, I had done what my mother had taught me to do. And one day I remember coming home, I was still staying with my parents where I was coming by to see my mom. She was on the phone talking with one of her friends, defending the Black Panther Party and our actions. And I'm like, whoa. And my father came along and my brother too. So that's how that started. And regarding the apology, here's the amazing thing. So we get kicked out really don't give it a whole lot of thought. And then, like I said, 20 years later, these friends of ours start this movement. And I was just amazed. And I started hearing from people, classmates, underclassmen, who would tell me how that action had affected them and their view towards life and activism. And that was an amazing thing. I mean, None of this stuff was done for a, a personal aggrandizement or anything like that. We saw something wrong. We did an action. And then we come to find out that these folks, both black and white, had been moved by that. It was an amazing thing. I love my life. <laughs> I think you pinpointed some really good points to the beginning of that, which is the action taking. Doers tend to have some interesting stories to tell. Yes. The do, the do is pretty important on that. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and like I said, that was my mom's thing. And and, and my mom practiced it. Okay, let me give you a, a, an illustration of my, of my mother. So I grew up on the west side of Chicago. I was about 12 years old. Doorbell rings. I answered the door. There's a woman at the door. Young man, is your mother home? I get my mother out the kitchen. She comes to the door. The woman says, Miss, you don't know me. I'm passing through the neighborhood. I'm on my way to catch a bus, but I really need to use the washroom. May I use your washroom? My mother says, of course. Shows the woman to the washroom. My mother goes into the kitchen, gets the good tea set down from on top of the refrigerator, which is covered in plastic. Ain't none of us ever had nothing out that tea set. She prepares tea and coffee, slices of pound cake and cookies. And when the woman comes out of the washroom, my mother's sitting at the dining room table with this spread invites the woman to sit down and treats her like a long lost friend. I never forgot that. That's hospitality to the, to yes, the highest to the level. Yes, degree. Yeah, it, it really is. And it, and it, you know, it dovetails with a lot of what we talk about in this podcast is the human factor, right? Mm -hmm. The interconnectivity that is so critical to, I think, keeping uh, the wheels greased in this world. Um, yes. And it gets, it's getting lost sometimes with technology and all different sorts of facets of things that are purportedly advances society. So I think it's really interesting to hear about something that your mom did that's so human. So human, so basic, and so so caring. Yeah. So absolutely caring. And it's, it's interesting because sometimes we think that we can't do anything because the problems are too big. The thing about it is that find what you can do wherever you are. For instance, one of the things that I do, I do programs at libraries. I tell stories in libraries. And what I do with my library program is I give away books. I tell the kids stories. I ask them questions. They answer correctly. They get a book. And... And I'll tell you, it's amazing. 
I was doing a program in Hemet, California. And I'd been at this library once before, five years prior. So I'm doing my program. And I noticed there's a woman there who doesn't seem to be with any kids. So after my program, she comes up to me. She says, I just have to tell you, I was here five years ago with my son and my daughter, who at that time now are in high school. They each won books from you. And I just want you to know, they still have those books. They still treasure those books. I wanted to backtrack a little bit. I need to know more about the FBI thing, because I feel like you just glossed over it like it was a mosquito in your house. Yeah, you know, the FBI, da, da, da. But how? How did that feel? How? What was running through your mind? It was frightening. It was absolutely frightening. When I first saw them, when I first had that, that meeting with them at the post office, they told me they could make my life very difficult. My phone rang constantly. It was every day from the time this happened. It's, it was as if I would think things can't get any worse, and they would. By the time, toward the end of 1972, I was a nervous wreck. I'd had to drop out of school because I just couldn't focus anymore. And they put me in a situation, like I said, that thing about going to the army. It's like, how am I going to deal with this? Now, most of my friends thought I lost my mind going into the army because I'm just coming out of this whole experience with the Black Panther Party and what have you. But to my mind, that was the best thing I could do to deal with this situation. And my first day in basic training, there were all of these folks who had just gone into the army, some because of the, G, the new GI Bill and a bunch of gangbangers who'd gone in because he was either going to the army or go to jail. So the, the college guys are looking scared. The uh, gangbangers are looking tough. And then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> this was peace for me. Nobody was beating at my door. No phones were ringing. Nobody was trying to kill me. <sighs> hmm. So the thing was, is that how can I deal with this situation? What's the best thing to do? And then to pull it off. And the truth of the matter is, is that experience set me up for the rest of my life. In the Army, I was stationed in Korea because I wanted to study martial arts. I also got introduced to Transcendental Meditation. Now think about this. I go into the army and get introduced to meditation. And then I, I'm a readaholic. So I'm reading all this stuff. I'm okay. You're okay. How to love yourself and all this kind of things and what have you. I got introduced to vegetarian, the concept of vegetarianism in the army. And I would later become a vegetarian. And so my whole, in my life, my whole thing has been, here's the situation. What can I do? to deal with this right now. That's the mindset that I've had. I'm a Virgo, we figure stuff out. <laughs> True. And does, see, Leslie does that answer through. the question? Yeah, I love that. Like you just in this, you know, scenario and like, oh, well, what can I learn from it? Like, how can I best bloom, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better word. And uh, like I said, I think I mentioned that I also got introduced to acupuncture while I was in the army in Korea, mm. and I would later become an acupuncturist. That's awesome. Wow. Never a dull moment. <laughs> yeah. And that comes from the attitude, like that we talk about that a lot, the attitude of how you approach anything. I mean, really, you can look at this story and see where someone was harassed to the point 
of having to forfeit their own autonomy as the only answer is to go into the army, which at that time, not a, not a great kind of experience. And, and yet it's because of the attitude and the reframing. And that, that's that, that's that um, storyteller, I think inside of you too, that just, that it's the reframing of it. And instead of what had happened to me, it is what can I find in this? Yes. I like that term reframing. I'm stealing that. <laughs> Done. I mean, it's really amazing. Cause I don't think that there's going to be many, many folks that have had to deal with those, that kind of extremity of pressure. Cause that's, a, I was just imagining like being a young person and that's, that's authority in a major way that is yeah. take, stripped away your privacy mm-hmm. that has, it has made it known where you are in comparison to their, <laughs> their ability. Yeah. And that is something that is wrenching and to say, Hey, and look what came out of it. These are lifelong pursuits in vegetarianism and in the acupuncture and meditation. That's pretty amazing, Michael. I yeah. mean, that, that really is the ability to take something in and put it through your factory and the product that comes out is pretty amazing. I got another one for you. So I come out of the service and at some point, so I got out of the service in 75, 76, I'm at the University of Illinois and at some point in time, I was getting high and I started dealing. First, it was just a little weed so I could have enough for my pinnacle games when we would get together and play on Friday. And then it sort of expanded. And then in August of 1978, I was introduced to Freebase. For those who don't know, Freebase is a way of consuming cocaine. You smoke it. And it is extremely, extremely, extremely addictive and debilitating. And I remember a friend of mine called me up one day and says, Mike, you got some cocaine? I said, yeah. He said, I got something to show you. And he came over and I watched him cook this stuff up and you smoke it. And I still remember my first hit. It sent me on a rush that was like, okay, got to do this. And at first, it was a great high. And it went along with doing other stuff. And then after a while, nothing else mattered but the high. So after a few months, I was a freebase junkie. I smoked. At the time I started, I was in school to be, uh, at DeVry to be an electrical engineer. I was working as a, a GTE, as a technician. I had a beautiful girlfriend that I was going to marry. I had savings because I'd put money aside for my daughter in the army. And inside of a month or two, smoked up, smoked up the savings, didn't have time for the job, didn't have time for school. Didn't. In fact, I remember going to school one day. I'm studying engineering. This is like my second semester. I sat down to take not a test, but a quiz. And I was always write pertinent equations at the top of the page. I couldn't remember nothing. Couldn't remember nothing. Dropped out of school. And that point, free base was my life. And I smoked up all my money, all my brain cells and what have you. And it got so bad. So this went on and on and on for about a year. August of the following year, I'd gone to this head shop to get my chemicals to make the free base. And the guy at the head shop said, looks like you're getting ready to cook it up. I said, yeah. He says, I've got a way to cook it up. It'll knock your socks off. I'm like, what? knock my socks off. 
I'm doing a half a gram a pull, okay? That's a lot. So I go by his place that night, and he cooks this stuff up, and I'm sitting on the stool, and I take a hit. Now, they always say, you're always chasing that first hit. Well, I chased that sucker. It caught me, and it grabbed hold of me and scared the bejesus out of me. I could use, I could pull for a minute. I started pulling, and all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I got you now. And for the first time in a year, I was scared. Now, you have to understand, there were times when I hit the pipe, and my heart looked like it was trying to leave my chest, and I knew I was going to die. I remember one time I was thinking, I just hope my heart slows down enough so I can take one last hit and go out on the rush. So here I am, I'm sitting there, and for the first time, I'm scared. I sat on this guy's stool, and I know he had to be freaking out. This guy about to die in my apartment. But my heart slowed down, and I left. Before I left, he made me take the rest of my cocaine with me. And I didn't even want it. And then later that day, out of reflex, I tried to hit it again, and I didn't. I couldn't. And then I woke up. And again, I was like, okay, my life is wrecked. What am I going to do? I became a health nut. I started fasting. I started studying acupuncture. And my specialty in actu acupuncture was drug detox. I trained at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx where Matula uh, Shakur, who had just passed away, he was a, a Black Panther and an activist who had started this drug detox program that I trained in. And I became an acupuncture detox specialist. And here's the interesting thing about my life. This is the way I look at my life. All of these things that happened in my life were preparation for the work I was to do. Mm -hmm. Like I said, last 10 years, I've been working in prisons. And when I go into prisons, I tell the guys, look, the difference between you and me, I was lucky and I had a good lawyer. I talk about it in my experiences with drugs. I talk about all my experiences. And that entices them to reflect on their own and to find their story. I had a guy in one of my classes. I do this thing where I give these little cards like this. And this one says, find what brings you joy and go there. So I use these kind of cards in my classes and I tell the guys, what's the first thought that comes to your mind when you read this quote? And that becomes the basis for a story. So I had this guy in one of my classes who had been in my class at another pr pr prison six years prior. And I give them these journals so they can keep their titles. And he bought his journal from my previous class. And so he says, Mike, I'm going to tell a story from these titles. Pick one. So there was something about roosters. Well, come to find out, he was a Mexican young man, and his father used to train fighting roosters. And as a young kid, he'd take him to the matches. As he got older, he started working with his father in the fights and what have you. The realization that he had as he was telling this story was that everything that had led him to a life of crime that would have ended up with him in prison started there with those roosters at those matches. And as I'm telling you this, I can still see the look on his face when he had that realization. And it hit him deeply. 
And that's the beauty of helping people find their stories, be they in prison or be they kids. It doesn't matter. We all need to find development to tell our stories. I think your life story, it's so interesting. Like for me, it's interesting because we've talked a lot. And so I know a lot of your history and a lot of your background, but it also reminds me significantly that we, when we look at humans, when we look at other people, we make snap judgments about who they are Mm -hmm. based on their hair color, based on their skin color, based on what they're wearing, based on a whole variety of things, whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood even. And we don't, we don't know who that person is. We have no idea until we take the time to actually speak yeah. and and talk and share. And then you're like, hey, I've got this in common with this person. Or maybe I don't have anything in common with this person, but I can learn from them. Yeah. And I can enrich my own life through my experience with them. And I think that's what you really bring forth in all you do is your celebration of who you are and your life and your appreciation for even the darkest moments and where they have led you to. I think developing this story is really interesting too, because what you're doing by helping facilitate that, it reminds everybody that that there is a, a spot to connect. And part of that story developing, and we even say it on our website, is the awkwardness Awkwardness has many forms. Sometimes it can be, you know, embarrassment or sometimes it can be because of a darker place and sometimes mm-hmm. it can be because of something that's really great and you do, and and you don't want to come across as boasting or we all have these weird you know we all know what they are whenever they're happening but they it, awkwardness takes so much so many different forms. But I think one of the things that's really cool about your storytelling and how you're promoting people to find their story is it embraces awkward. Yes. Yes, 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 and how yes. How important yes. that is, no matter what that means for an individual. Mm-hmm. That's magic. That's magic. Hey, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I I do want to bring up one thing that I love, which is there's this little commercial that pops up <laughs> once in a while for Skittles candy. Yes, where this, where this man is milking. I believe he told me it was actually a male giraffe. But let me tell you the story. Let me. It's <laughs> really good. That. <laughs> so this is around 2008. The economy is tanking and arts programs are getting cut all over the earth. I mean, my work went damn near to zero. I mean, before that, I had worked literally all over the world and it all went poof. So I say to my wife, Valerie, I need something to supplement my storytelling until I can get right again. She says, well, this guy gives this class. Hey, I saw your commercial. So I took the class, the beginning class, the advanced class did the showcase. And this guy signs me up. And he says, there's this commercial. uh, And I go for the audition. And they asked me to laugh. First, let me back up. The guy before me was balder than Michael Jordan. He had, because they they, they wanted dreadlocks and a big laugh. (laughs) And... Got the locks, okay? Got the locks. (laughs) So this guy's balder than Michael Jordan, got this fake dreadlock hat. They say, get your butt out of here. (laughs) I come up, they say, well, at least your locks are are real. Let me hear you laugh. I'm a laughologist. I rock their world. They're like, there's a person turned around, they turn back. Guy coming in after me, I walked out. He said, oh, man. I said, yeah, you can take your butt home. It's over. 
<laughs> we shot the commercial in Malibu, on the beach in Malibu, February 18th, 2009. Elizabeth Shue, Adrian Brody, all of these uh, actors and rock folks came because there was a two-ton Willie, the two-ton giraffe. And we, we shot the commercial. And the thing about it was, okay, it was a great commercial. It was a gig. I got paid for a few years on it. That was great. But what was even better, it was PR. I was in Trinidad to do a program at a high school. These kids don't know me from nobody. The kids are coming into the auditorium, and I see some of the kids with Skittles. And I said, oh, y'all like Skittles? They said, yeah. They said, you got your cell phone? I said, yeah. I said, look this up. I had their attention. <laughs> Credibility. Credibility through a giraffe. But, but here's the really wonderful thing. It also helped me tremendously in my work in the prisons. Again, these people don't know me from nobody. So one day I'm at one prison and I'm walking to the room where I'm giving my class and a corrections officer comes up to me and says, excuse me, but is it true that you're the guy from the Skittles commercial with the driver? Before I can answer, an inmate, a black inmate walking by, I was a black corrections officer, black inmate walking by, I said, yeah, man, he's the Skittles guy. And the officer and the inmate, high five. <laughs> that ain't the norm, okay? <laughs> that ain't the norm. And another application, um, now, not everybody likes us. There's artists who come in and work in the prisons. Not everybody likes us. They got the, all these horrible names for us and what have you. There was an officer or two who I, I give these little, the little pop-open cards, and they refuse to accept them. One day I'm walking where I have to go to the washroom past these officers and other staff people who know me and what have you, they're, hey, hi, hi. So this one officer says, who is this guy? Oh, he's the Skittles guy. Well, this group of officers, all of a sudden we start having conversations. They ask me about the commercial. Have you done the commercials? How'd you do it? What have you? And the main thing is that a dialogue developed all right and a lot of getting when you try to make people change their mind it ain't generally going to work and i don't try to do that i just be me and i try to pe treat people righteously and things started changing because of just that attitude and just being that wonderful me that i am <laughs> Oh, gosh, Michael. So we're wrapping up our time, which means it's time to go to Rachel for your takeaways on our conversation with Michael today. Yeah, which there are many because you're such a treasure chest of tales. I feel lucky and quite privileged to having met you and spoke with you because you just radiate such positivity. And I think the big thing I took away is the importance of mindset, right? Yes. Like listening if you listed all the things that have happened to you on a piece of paper I'd be like oh what a rough go but then I met you and that that doesn't add up because of your mindset and you're wanting to take what you can out of situations and also I really like what you said about do what you can where you are that, yes. that stuck with me yes 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 oh man agree as always Rachel and um with that attitude, it's really cool, Michael, because you're relating it to one of the things that you do very naturally, even, even though it's a great skill work as well, which is storytelling. 
And you've encouraged us all to be curious and to be bold enough to constantly ask, what's the story of everyone around us? Not only to be responsible to our own self and our own story, but to ask, what's the story? Because that helps us connect. And you just gave that to me. And that's something that I'm going to kind of utilize whenever I I can go, what's up? So that I want to be bold enough to ask, what's the story? What's the Yay! story? And I think that that's really connecting what that attitude is doing and how you're helping others do that too. And that's really, really great. And I appreciate getting to meet you. Cool and a gang. <laughs> Good story. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>